to another episode i feel like i haven't recorded a like solo preview kind of thing in so long um and it's because i haven't actually (laughs) i haven't recorded one in so long and i probably should explain why so basically it's just been a really crazy couple of weeks i moved out of my old apartment so i was moving um into a new apartment still in austin And, um, like while that was all happening, my computer broke. Um, and then, so I didn't have a computer for a while. Then I got a new computer, but you know, Max these days, like keep losing capability and whatever I could, they didn't have an SD card thing. So I got like a new SD card, um, like converter thingy, my Bob. Uh, but then it turns out the SD card I bought didn't, wasn't compatible with this recording device. It was a whole thing. And, um, yeah. So basically, long way of saying, it's also been just like a very stressful couple of weeks, um, which is fitting for this, you know, mental health podcast that I am stressed. And obviously, I'm just going to let you guys know that. But uh, aside from that, I guess the only things I really want to catch you up on, so to speak, um, well, actually, I mean, I might actually save that for another solo either like preview or just a little episode on like things that have been going on in my life that I would love to share with this incredible community because I know you all are just so understanding. Um, But I do want to first say just like in regards to this episode, I I recorded it back with um, Dr. Roy Richard Grinker a a while ago. And so it was funny listening back because I, I kind of forgot about how incredible our conversation was and how, wonderful this human is and so when I was listening to it back today you know I was procrastinating and editing it I got just like very emotional re-listening to it because it it this episode really means a lot to me for a number of reasons um for for one thing Dr. Grinker is just probably one of the kindest souls I've ever spoken with and if I went to George Washington University or if anyone listening does go to GW take a class with him because he must be an absolutely incredible teacher. Um, if he's half as incredible of a human, you know, as he is, I'm just based on my 45 minutes and talking with him. But, um, he also just, I'm going to get corny and might, might get a little teary. So apologies, but, um, he reminds me a lot of my dad and I, I really love my dad a lot. And, um, so just listening to this episode with him and remembering how, when I spoke with him earlier this year, how I felt that just like connection. Um, he also just has a, has a daughter who he, he really loves and cares about, um, who we talk about and it just got me really emotional and I'm sorry, I'm going to like get a little teary, but, um, yeah. And also from, there's like a DC connection. So if anyone's from DC, you know, shout out. Um, but that's, that's one reason. And also, uh, in this episode, I, I do read um, a poem slash short story that my, my cousin wrote um, a couple years back. And um, he's an amazing human. Um, he's autistic. And 
the poem he wrote, I remember reading it three years ago. Like it was, I think I read it like right, I got it right before graduation. And when we were recording this episode, um, Dr. Greencrest had a daughter with autism and it reminded me of, you know, my cousin and I found this poem and I read it out loud during the episode and I just, it's so beautiful and I, I'm, you know, I haven't actually created the, the cover art for this, for this podcast episode, but I'll, I'm, I think I'm going to add the poem to it because it's just the most moving, beautiful piece of literature I've, I've read and one of the most beautiful things that I've, I've read in my entire life. And, um, just really makes me proud to, you know, be his, be his family. And so, um, yeah, that's just a little emotional preface to this beautiful episode. And as I get emotional, I should probably talk about how I'm going to process these emotions, which is with therapy, subtle slash easy plug to make. But I, um, as you guys know, I've been working for Talkspace and they've been amazing enough to sponsor Solace in the City. And um, not just with anything like not just a small, you know, little 10% off, but rather $100 off your first month of therapy. Now, keep in mind, my first, like, my therapy sessions were over a hundred dollars. And so it are sometimes, um, it's really, really, really hard to get therapy that is affordable and accessible. So Talkspace, you know, we are the largest online provider for therapy and being able to give you a hundred dollars off is such an honor. So if you just use the code Zoe at checkout for Talkspace, you'll get a hundred dollars off your first month of therapy which is amazing. And so, yeah, all I have to do is go to Talkspace.com, do the little sign-up thing, and use the promo code ZOE, which is this Z-O-E. Um, but, yeah, that's my little spiel. And now here is the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace and the City. Today, I'm so excited to virtually be here with Dr. Roy Richard Grinker, who is a best-selling author of his most recent book, Nobody's Normal. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So why don't we kick it off um, with you telling me a little bit of background information about yourself? Um, where are you from? How old are you, if you care to share? Where do you grow up, go to school? What's your story? So I um, am an anthropologist, uh, Roy Richard Grinker, as you said, and um, I grew up in Chicago. Um, and I um, was born in 1961 and had a pretty unusual childhood in some ways um, because my great-grandfather was a psychiatrist. My father, uh, my grandfather was a psychiatrist. My father was a psychiatrist and my wife is a psychiatrist. But of course, my wife didn't enter the picture until after childhood. But I was sort of groomed to be a fourth generation psychiatrist. And I have to say, if there's anything that you don't want to do, if you want your kid to be something is tell them that they have to be that thing. And they yeah. will for sure rebel against it, which is what happened with me. Um, I also had an unusual childhood in Chicago because I I, I lived in the city, but lived across the street from my grandfather. Not that many people get to grow up in such close proximity. And um, he used to hold these seminars with me on Saturday mornings in which he would tell me about the latest articles that came out in the psychiatric journals. Uh, we're talking like 10 years old, 11 <laughs> years old. <laughs> wow. I remember a few things, not too much. That's so interesting. It's 
it's funny my I'm thinking to like my mom her dad um, was a doctor her grandfather was a doctor but she was growing up learning sto- he was a urologist so <laughs> she was growing up learning stories about about urology body parts yeah <laughs> and I I w- can't even imagine growing up and in, in surrounded by people who are in a field that's about you know the brain and I I haven't even taken a psychology course I just you know very um ingrained in the my own like readings and things like that I feel like I'm always psychoanalyzing people so that must have been a very interesting like developmental couple of years for you well it it was and um I really remember that they thought that mental illnesses were within the realm of what any typical person would experience during their life. Mm-hmm. So the stigma of mental illness, which you know everybody knows about, was not something that I really understood until much later in high school when I had a job at a psychiatric hospital. But before that, I really don't think I had a very good sense of there being a uh, a sort of moral uh, uh, difference mm-hmm. between mental illness and any other kind of illness. Yeah, and which makes perfect sense as to <laughs> even just the title of your um, most recent book. But I guess then what drew your interest in anthropology and were you originally pursuing the psychiatric field as well. You said you had a, a job in it. Well, you know, I kind of sabotaged myself. I, I did badly in science classes and did really well in arts and humanities and social sciences, which is sort of a way of saying, sorry, I can't be a doctor. I suck at science. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that I loved about anthropology was that it provided a critical window or a critical lens onto my own society, which includes medicine and science. Mm-hmm. That we look at these things not as just facts, but as uh, cultural constructions. So I remember one of those Saturday morning seminars that my grandfather had with me was, a, was in 1973. I must have been 11 or 12 years old. And it was about an, a, a, um, a, a study in which um, the researchers showed videos of people who'd been diagnosed and treated with schizophrenia in the United States. They showed those videos to British psychiatrists and to American psychiatrists. And the majority of the American psychiatrists diagnosed the person with schizophrenia based on the video. The majority of the British psychiatrists diagnosed the person with what was then called manic depressive illness, which we now call bipolar disorder. And my grandfather said, isn't it amazing? You'd think that the psychiatric communities in England and the United States wouldn't be so different that the majority of people in one place would say it's a thought disorder and the majority of people in another would say there's a mood disorder. And that is really a fundamental anthropological kind of claim that what we see to be true is what we think is true. Yeah. And so, you know, even two societies like England and and the United States are so different in the way that they view behavioral issues. Imagine the difference between um, India and the United States or Japan and the United States or uh, someplace in Africa and the United States. Those are even greater differences. Yeah, it's almost like you kind of zoomed out of, you know, what you're 
father and grandfather and great grandfather were doing and like looked at it all from a bird's eye view above everything seeing, okay, but why do we, you know, diagnose or, you know, why we kind of become conditioned to even make diagnoses to begin with? That's exactly the point, Zoe, that you're saying, you know, bird's eye view. You could also say, you know, sort of a detachment, right? Where you sort of step outside and -hmm. look at something new. You know how when you, like, if you're, uh, you live in the United States and you travel to Europe, like one of the first things that kind of um, jumps out at you is how small the cars are and how small the streets are. Yeah. Over time, you kind of get used to it. Then you go back to the United States and the first thing that strikes you is everything's so big here. Yeah. And the streets are so wide and the, 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 the cars are so big. And that's the, that kind of detachment where when you detach yourself, you see something in a new light, right? A lot of people think anthropology is the study of other cultures. And that's half true. The other half is the study of cultures to come home, to see yeah. your own world in a new light and to see it critically based on what you've learned elsewhere. And the book, Nobody's Normal, is, is really about how we can look both at other cultures and also at other histories and our past, which are like foreign cultures, mm-hmm. uh, to gain insight into how we construct the world as human beings and not how it's constructed for us somehow by nature. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I can definitely, um, it definitely resonates with me. I used to live in Athens, Greece. So it was, I moved there when I was 14. And just as you said, you know, like, why are the streets so small? Why are the beds so hard? Why do they only put like one sheet on each bed? And, but then by month five or so, that was, I was used to it. And then coming home, uh, however many years later, I was like, why is everything big here? Why are there so many cars? Why can't I walk to, you know, just walk to go to the grocery store? So it is, as you say, something, especially when you're younger, that you just slowly or I guess quickly become more accustomed to. And then it becomes kind of, as you said, your normal. Right, right, exactly. And and so, you know, what, what we really need to do is to be able to step back and say, you know, the the world that we created is something we created. You know, if, we, if it's not created for us by nature, then we can change it. And I think that's a really empowering sort of view. And I'm seeing a lot of those changes in my world. You know, I teach at George Washington University. Most of my students are, you know, between 18 and 24 years old. And I'm really seeing a kind of change in which they are seeking to define themselves Mm-hmm. and take ownership of, uh, of themselves and advocate for themselves so that they can be understood or seen in the way they want to be seen. To give you a good example, there was a student who um, stood up in the front of our big 290-student uh, um, lecture hall at the beginning of uh, the semester, this has been the before pandemic time, yeah. stood up in, in the auditorium and said, um, hello, my name is so-and-so, um, I have Tourette's disorder, I might say things that startle you or seem to be even offensive or um, out of the blue, but I just want you to know that I have Tourette's disorder. And that helped him, it helped the whole the students, it helped me because what he did 
was to change the way they looked at him. Instead of looking at him as saying, what's wrong with that guy? How is he? He's unusual. What's going on with him? Is he strange? Is he bizarre? Is he whatever? To something that was a framework that most of these students understood. And most of the good stories I've heard about people um, reducing the stigma of mental illness have to do with that kind of advocacy and disclosure, not keeping things a secret and being ashamed. Wow. That, I love that story for so many reasons. And um, I definitely want to talk about that, you know, redefining your, or I guess self-defining yourself and how, you know, millennials and mostly Gen Z is doing that just so well now. But to kind of, you know, share my own story, I I have Tourette's syndrome and I, Oh, okay. Up, yeah, and growing up. I was, did not know when I raised that story that it would yeah. resonate with you. Oh, I mean, I have chills because it's something growing up that gave me so much shame because, um, you know, firstly, like how it's like not glorified in the media, but shamed in the media. And there's so many nuances. I mean, I, I don't have luckily like I, or I never had, you know, the profanities that I would be like spitting out and, um, upper Yeah, exactly. And you don't, you know, I, I'm, I feel like in movies, it's always like the homeless person running around just screaming like curse words at s- strangers. So it has such a negative connotation, but I kept that to myself and I would always lie about it. And I'd say, Oh, it's, um, you know, allergies or it's, something stuck in my throat like I was so ashamed of it and even to the point of we had a speaker come to my high school class um my sophomore year who was a big advocate and he spoke very um like loud and proud about his Tourette's syndrome and I was so ashamed of myself that I didn't even attend the lecture because I was so nervous that someone would be like oh like maybe that's what Zoe has and only now at 25 am I like even comfortable saying that. And I, I wish I'd grown up with colleagues or colleagues. I wish I'd grown up with, you know, peers who had kind of empowered me to take ownership of that and to make it part of my identity that I was proud of, as opposed to waiting for someone to ask, Oh, like, why do you do this? Or why is that? And then spitting out lies. So I, I tell a few stories kind of like that in nobody's normal, um, like the student who said that when she was diagnosed with ADHD um, in her freshman year, it was the best day of her freshman year. And everybody in the class said, well, why, how, could, how could that be? She said, well, because yeah. I always knew I had it. But my parents wouldn't permit me to see a therapist or get a diagnosis. And her dad in particular would just tell her that she was lazy or didn't work hard enough, right? Or maybe she wasn't that smart. And so the reason that getting diagnosed with ADHD was the best day of her freshman year was because she felt like for the first time, somebody of real importance, you know, uh, in status, um, Mm. uh, saw that she wasn't uh, lazy, that she wasn't dumb, that she just needed some care and some attention, some help, some treatment. Yeah, no, that's so powerful. And I think I'm, I'm guessing these students are, you know, 18, 19. So they are dating myself now, but <laughs> it is exciting to see a, a, a generation grow up 
with it being normalized and even though there's a lot that social media does wrong, I think that having a universe where you can connect with people from, you know, all across the world um, on something that, and then see that you're not alone is so powerful. And it's, it's the silver lining of social media aside from all of the, you know, negative connotation that, <laughs> that everything gets. Hopefully your um, listeners don't hear all the rain there's a lot of rain rumbling outside, um, but uh, I'll just I'll, I'll keep talking. But if anybody's wondering what that rumbling is, oh, I can't hear it at all. It's also actually it's supposed to rain here, so um, hopefully, fingers crossed, it does not. But. Well, so so one of the things that I I I did, which I um, you know I sort of sometimes when you write, you know, you take a risk and you try to write something and see if it'll work. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But one of the things I did, and then I, I think it worked, I kept it, is that I ended the book with the story of Hester Prynne from The Scarlet Letter. Now, oh, you know, I most... I haven't read the book, but I, I know of the book. <laughs> well, most high school students have encountered it in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or college students have read The Scarlet Letter about Hester Prynne. You know, it's written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, published in 1850, about a woman who is shamed for... Um, adultery and has to wear the letter A on her shirt or on her dress. And um, that's pretty much what most people think about that novel or remember from it. But at the end of it, she comes back to the village where she had been shamed and she's still wearing the A. And everybody says, wait a minute, it's been so long. Why are you still wearing the A? And even the judges say, you don't still have to wear that A. And she says, oh, no, I want to. And her words are, it has ceased to be a stigma. And it is something that stands for my strength and endurance. And it's a really moving end of the book because not only does she define, you know, change that definition say, this isn't sin. This isn't necessarily just going to you know, define me as immoral. This is all I'm going to make this define me in a way that can be positive. Yeah. Not only does she do that, but because she comes back to the village, other people, women in the village, see her as someone who will be sympathetic to them when they have their own problems. And they come and talk to her for advice. Kind of like that A was a, an ancient um, a degree in clinical psychology, yeah. right? Um, and everybody had problems. And so I use that story, you know, to show these multiple things like, you know, how you can take ownership and define things for yourself in a positive way, how you can, um, uh, how other people will respect you because of it. Um, and then also, you know, how, how anybody in the world today can, can change things by saying, I'm going to take that word queer, for example, from the bigots. And I'm going to change the way that is. You know, I'm going to change the way that those words were used to hurt. And I'm going to change them. Yeah. No, it's so true. And again, I haven't read the book, but it's now now something that I I, I like the kind of psychological uh, twist to that because it's true. And I think that's obviously what you and I are both trying to do me with my podcast. I'm so open about all of my past struggles in the hopes that someone listening is like, okay, like, so I'm not the only one who, you know, has these thoughts. I'm not the only one who has X, Y, or Z. 
and through creating that kind of community of vulnerability, I hope to, you know, just let someone out there know that it's okay. Like they're not alone. I'm just very vocal about it. And most people aren't, but hopefully one day we'll live in a society where, you know, people will introduce themselves and just uh, with that disclosure that you mentioned of those two students. And you know, it's it's really not um, reducing the stigma of mental illness is 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 you're not it's not going to be done with like one strategy, right? It's going to take time and it's complicated. But but one of the one of the things we see is that a lot of um, advocacy organizations seem to assume that the stigma of mental illness has something to do with uh, ignorance and lack of education and lack of awareness. But what I show in my book is that our notions of our values about mental illness come from hundreds of years, hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years ago when we started to be a capitalist society and we decided to value those who were independent, autonomous producers, didn't depend on anyone else and and people who were accountable for themselves and only themselves. That's when the ideal became the autonomous, independent worker. I mean, we know that th- to be human is to be dependent, yeah. but yet our ideals are, are quite different. The very first insane asylums were built for people who were quote unquote idle that didn't work. Yeah. They were the ones who were the, the, uh, who, who were drawing down and, and um, hamstringing their families. They weren't brought there by police or the state, they were brought to these asylums by their families. This person doesn't work, or this person's not helping out. And so what we need to do is not only education and awareness, but we need to rethink what we consider to be the ideal person. Is the ideal person today somebody who must live away from his or her parents at the arbitrary age of 18 and 21? Is the ideal person somebody who has to be working on site and can't work remotely? Is the ideal person somebody who's not a computer nerd? Or maybe we're changing and, the, and nerd and geek are becoming more positive terms. So yeah. as we change the ideals of the person, we will change the stigma of mental illness. Definitely. And that's something I, I have written down because I really want to dive into it. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting and that I heard from your TED Talk was your studies um, in various villages in Africa. And so I was hoping that you could share, you know, your um, two encounters, one with someone who would be diagnosed with schizophrenia in, you know, the U.S. maybe, um, and then autism. And it just share those with my listeners because I just, I thought that was so fascinating. And it, you know, touches on that anthropological. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I'll tell you, the man that I met in Namibia uh, in the Kalahari Desert, um, uh, and I call him Tomzo, um, he actually does have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, not in his village, but in the clinic about 12 miles away. And he walks to that clinic once a month to get antipsychotic medicines. But because the antipsychotic medicines are working and he's not having many symptoms, he's not considered sick in his village. He's not branded for life as you know, a schizophrenic because his symptoms are under control. Furthermore, his symptoms are thought in the village to come not from a brain disorder, but from the result of supernatural malevolence 
from a, a neighboring village that had a grudge against this village and the, the evil spirits just happened by, you know, randomly to settle in Tomzo. So it's not his fault. And so this is a, not a, a place that I would say is the most ideal per place to live in the world, yeah. but, but, but they have managed to find a way for society to take some of the blame. And that reduces the tendency for him to be stigmatized and labeled and, and branded as somehow uh, not worthy. And then there was nearby, there was a little boy named Geshe who would probably be diagnosed with autism in the United States if he lived here. But um, he's non-speaking and uh, has, is, is quite functionally impaired by the standards of, you know, a clinician. Um, and I wondered who was going to take care of him when his parents died. And so I asked his parents, you know, who's going to take care of him when you die? Are you worried about that? They didn't even understand the question because they could, they were thinking, but you mean the whole village is going to die? And I say, no, well, just the two of you. And they're, well, then the rest of the village will be here. Like it did, they didn't understand it because they have a community with a vast network of social supports. They're not worried about who's going to take care of little Geshe because Geshe's got, lives in the village. Yeah. I come back to the United States from that and I have a daughter with autism. She's an adult now, but that experience really led me to kind of reinvigorate my efforts to make sure that I have good social networks and relationships with my extended family so that when I'm not around, people will help take care of my daughter. Yeah, no. And I think that's amazing. And um, I know that you or your first book was actually, you know, about reframing autism and um, it was about my daughter's earlier life. Yeah, so I also have questions about that. But before I dive into that, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit more about how our size or, you know, the Western world kind of conditioned us to think, you know, idleness is the devil's best friend or whatever that quote is, um, which led to, as you said, the first insane, insane asylums um, and just this notion of if you're not working hard, you're unproductive. And then, you know, if you have a mental disorder, which is, you know, can cause unproductivity there, you know, by virtue of it, whatever <laughs> X plus Y equals Z or whatever the thing is, I was a math major. I should, I should know that, it, <laughs> that example, but then you're, you know, not pr productive for society. So um, I know that you mentioned kind of that, in capitalism, mental illness has kind of become a mark of shame, which I is a new perspective and it's fascinating. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, throughout the last couple of hundred years, as I said before, you know, the ideal person has been somebody who is independent and autonomous. And so the conditions that are the most stigmatized are those that actually threaten our ideals of autonomy and self-control. So what are those? Psychotic disorders, disorders that uh, involve some degree of impairment in impulse control, 
Tourette's might be one of those. Uh, addictions, substance abuse disorders. Those are the most stigmatizing of them because, specifically because of what they index about self-control and autonomy and independence and, and accountability. And the idea that the individual is responsible, ultimately responsible for everything uh, that they do and everything that they think is, is, is really the source of the contemporary stigma of mental illness in capitalist societies. Capitalism doesn't exist outside of capitalist societies. So we need to look at the social context and how we define human behavior. So one big chunk of the book deals with another aspect of that individual uh, location of mental illness, and that's neuroscience and the brain. And there are a lot of people who think we will reduce the stigma of mental illness if we think about mental illness as, um, as a brain disorder, as opposed to something that is much more complex and we reduce it to the brain and we see it, you know, just like you break your leg and you go to the doctor, you have a problem with your brain, you go to the psychiatrist, no stigma. It's just an organ that's having a malfunction. But that approach actually reinforces that old notion of human beings as bounded autonomous individuals and actually the surveys, the studies suggest that the more people see mental illnesses as brain disorders, the more they stigmatize them. Yeah. When we reduce stigma, we do so by seeing that mental illnesses are uh, caused by more factors than we can even imagine. Genes, biology, yes, but wealth, poverty, stressors like wars or pandemics, adverse childhood circumstances, of uh, uh, social supports, geography, whether you're rural or urban, whether you're, you're, you're having repeated uh, racist or sexist or homophobic uh, insults in your life. All of these things come together and it doesn't make sense to say it's you know, biological entirely. And so you know, I really do see the, the focus on the brain as part and parcel you know, with that whole um, you know, history of the autonomous individual productive worker. That's not to say I'm anti-capitalist. It's to say, if we want to understand where stigma came from, we have to understand that it came from our society. And the thing that defines our society most clearly is industrialization. Yeah. No, that's so fascinating. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And kind of going back to what you said, you know, it's not just biological. It's not just chemical there's so many factors which is part of what makes mental illness so confusing um but because there's so many factors i think if anything it should prevent labeling because how can you label something that's caused you know the the number of people who have been experiencing stress anxiety depression since the pandemic began has shot up which you know that's not biological it's a product of what is of this crazy thing that's been occurring in um, our world and is still, you know, still occurring. So, yeah, in the right after World War Two, my grandfather, who had run psychiatric operations for the Arm Air Force in um, the northern Tunisian in the Tunisian campaign, um, 
he gave an interview to the New York Times, and I guess the reporter asked him, you know, about all those crazy pilots that he treated or whatever in the Air Force. And he said, these, these are not abnormal people. These are normal people in abnormal circumstances. Wow. And so even back then, he was kind of in trying to make the argument that, um, that when there is a stressor that we can identify that is outside of the person, we can understand the person's distress as within the realm of what human beings should experience. I mean, take anxiety, right? Um, we have to have anxiety. Yeah. It's part of being human. If I did not have anxiety, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today because I would have walked out into the middle of the street without looking both ways. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'd be hit by a car. We well, have to I have anxiety. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at some point, in a person's life, it may be that conditions are such that that anxiety moves over into an area where it's really impairing your life and your relationships to your work and so on and your health. And at that point, we say, oh, well, you know, intervention, a treatment is helpful. And we're all somewhere on this spectrum. Now, not everybody who has anxiety, you know, we all have anxiety, it's universal, but not everybody's going to have an anxiety disorder. The time when we should think about labels is when they're needed in order to drive a, a treatment, yeah. right? Any diagnosis of anything is only as good as the treatment it provides. What we have to make sure of is not that we don't have words to describe different kinds of suffering, but that those words don't hurt. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a real fan of the colloquial use of mental illness terms. There's a lot of differences of opinion on this. People who say, oh, I don't think that somebody should say they had PTSD from a bad class in college because PTSD is something really serious that can cause depression. You shouldn't say, oh, I have PTSD from that meal or that class or that econ final. There are people who say, you shouldn't say you got a, you're a little OCD because you're a neat freak. Those are really serious conditions. But I'm an advocate of using these terms more colloquially because I think that the more we use them, the more we disarm those words mm -hmm. and make it more difficult for them to hurt because yeah. we see that we are all on this spectrum together. Yeah, I think as long as they're used in a way that's not hurtful, kind of as you said, or in like a, a way that's defining yourself badly or, you know, using word negatively, using it neg negatively towards someone else or towards yourself, then I agree completely because the only way we're going to normalize anything is by talking about it. Um, yeah, but you know, some, and, but as you well know, I'm sure, you know, sometimes those words are not good words. Yeah. And it depends. I mean, like one of the things I talk about in Nobody's Normal is um, the word for schizophrenia in um, Japan was just so horrible that, Nobody wanted to get treatment. Nobody wanted to diagnose their patients with it. Nobody, if they, a patient was diagnosed, they'd keep the diagnosis from the patient. Wow. Because the word meant like a mind kind of torn asunder, like a, a mind destroyed. And advocates got together and they renamed it. And it now has some very bland term like integration disorder or something like that. And 
people are getting more treatment and they're being told that they have this condition. And, you know, you just semantics makes a, a big difference. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're not just words. Words are so powerful. Yeah. Wait, that's so interesting. And I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anything in the English language in terms of defining that need. I can tell you one, um, which is autism. Uh, the word autism was so stigmatized and so negative and such a, uh, a devastating concept back in the late 80s, early 90s, that doctors developed the concept of Asperger's disorder. And that was to denote a sort of less involved, less impairing form of autism without the language delay. Oh, that's so interesting. And, and then, you know, but the, the scientists will tell you, no, that wasn't the reason. The reason was that we needed to come up with subtypes of autism. But, but even when they developed the notion of Asperger's disorder based on the work of Hans Asperger, no, no, no neuropsychiatric tester ever thought that they could reliably distinguish between subtypes. And Asperger's took off because people embraced it as a non-stigmatized word for autism. Then what happens in 1994 is the neuropsychiatric testers say, finally, yeah, we really can't distinguish between these. And the word autism is no longer so stigmatized. So Asperger's did its job. We can get rid of it. And they got rid of it. They got it out of the, um, uh, in 2013, rather. I, I don't know why I said 94, but 2013, Asperger's was eliminated from the psychiatrist's manual. Not, Not because it was cured, you know, but because we didn't need it anymore. Culture had done its work. That's so fascinating. And it, it makes sense because I think with the development of the word Asperger's into, you know, our English language, so to speak, um, you know, you get the idea of being on a spectrum and then, and now I think there, even if it's not in the like APA or, you know, psychological manual, I think people think of Asperger's and autism as one is the same, one in the same, but without as heavy of a stigma surrounding it, there's also been some incredible like TV shows, um, released recently on Netflix. Um, and actually I've been, I've been like searching for this poem that my cousin wrote and I finally found it. So, um, to give some context, my cousin who, okay, this was March. Oh, wow. This was actually pretty timely. It was March 28th, 2018. So he was 14. So he would, 17 he'd be about 17 now um he has Asperger's or autism and he wrote this poem um for his I guess I don't know how old you are when you're 14 uh or what grade you're in probably like eighth grade ninth grade 10th grade, ninth grade yeah ninth grade probably um so he wrote this poem and I just wanted to share it because oh it, that's great please I think it it really shows just how beautiful a mind can be that has a label attached to it. Um, so here we go. The concept of sharing everything for your friend's happiness is not something that everyone feels is possible. We live in a world full of challenges and competition. It can be a scary thing sharing everything because you ha must have faith that your friend will accept both the good and the bad and still love you. 
All day, teenagers are under pressure to be cool. It can be exhausting. Having friends to support you can feel like a lifeboat in a fierce ocean. It can keep you afloat despite the all-consuming mighty pressure around you. Here's my challenge. A lifeboat is right there in front of me, but I can't use it. I can climb up to the edge and see my fellow survivors. Getting in, though, isn't just so isn't as easy. Getting to shore escapes my attention. So for now, I need to keep swimming until I can get into that boat. Communication is the cornerstone of all good relationships. How has it only been in the last few months at school that nice people have realized how friendly I can be? That is where my autism comes in and relentlessly lets me slip from the edge of that boat. I've been in mainstream education for about a year and a half and only recently are my peers been, have my peers been asking me who I really am. They've realized that talking isn't the only way to get to know a person's true self or to be their friend. I'm not naive, not at all. I patiently understand how hard it is to say something to someone and have them just hum and not make eye contact. Clotted signals are the bane of my existence. However, I'm learning to persevere and so are my peers and that is where friendship grows, wanting to stick through it for the other person. How can someone be an honest-to-God incredible friend? Here's how. Talk to someone genuinely and from the heart, even if they cannot talk back. Give them respect and awareness. Above all, remember that your kindness has the potential to change their life. And I cannot believe I just found that quote or that that thing. But um, no, that's very moving. I'm in, and you know, it, it's it's very heartfelt, and and yet also very positive and forward looking. Mm-hmm. He actually lives in D.C., so <laughs> maybe one day he'll be at GW. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of the um, successful efforts to reduce the stigma of mental illness have started with people on the autism spectrum, you know, in the, in the, the movement sometimes called neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that you know, I'm not going to credit everything to them because you've got civil rights and you've got gay rights and, you know, all kinds of other um, movements that are disability rights that are working together. But neurodiversity has been really crucial in opening up discussions about lots of things other than autism. Yeah. Like some of the employers that I've interviewed who have autistic employees will say, oh, when we started to hire people with autism, people who were experiencing bipolar disorder came and opened up to us. Or people who had um, attention issues came up to us. Or in one case, a woman came to her boss and talked about um, having some discomfort due to symptoms related to menopause. And the guy, the manager said, you know, what's happened? A woman is coming to her manager and talking about an issue that's related to her identifying as a woman and an aging woman in business uh, to her male manager, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. That wouldn't have happened before we started this autism hiring program that basically said to all of our employees, we care about you and being somewhere on some spectrum and having suffering that is both bodily and behavioral are equally um, uh, uh, things we want to hear about to help you. Yeah. I, I don't want to, um, you know, take away your cousin's metaphor, but um, it's like the neurodiversity movement was a tide that raised all boats. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it makes sense. I mean, 
from the corporate lens as well because some of the most ingenious people in history have now been, I mean, whether it's true or not, thought to be um, autistic or have somewhat on the spectrum, like uh, Steve Jobs, I think. Uh, people say Bill Gates, but, you know. Yeah, I've, I've heard, like, Tim Burton. Um, well, have you seen the um, television show The Good Doctor? Or you've heard of it? Yes, I well, it's always on. There are always commercials for it after The Bachelor. So, so that's <laughs> yeah, how everybody knows it. <laughs> okay, so the show, The Good Doctor. I just let me tell you a little story about that show, because I started to do work on autism in Korea in the mid two thousands, and nobody would talk about autism. It was so scary and frightening. And even if somebody knew somebody who had a kid with autism, they wouldn't tell you about them. I would say, hey, I'm here to do research on autism. Do you know anybody who has autism? Yes, but I can't tell you about it because it would be too dishonorable and shameful for that family if I disclosed that, right? But over time, with a lot of the changes, including changes in neurodiversity and then research, some of which I was involved with, really changed the landscape in Korea where people started to see autism differently. They started to see autism as something that wasn't just about challenges, but could also be about strengths. And they developed a TV show about a doctor who was autistic. And then Daniel Day Kim, the American, Korean American actor, bought the show from Korea and oh, sold it to okay. Hollywood. Wow, I did not know that. As the good doctor. And so here's a society where nobody would talk about autism. All of a sudden, there, there are lots of people with autism in lots of shows in Korea, and it's become you know, a sort of central motif to look at human beings on a spectrum of suffering. And, um, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful, you know, I don't know if success story is the right term, but really it's a wonderful story in how quickly yeah. things can change. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, before I end the podcast, I was hoping to ask you just a few questions, um, kind of unrelated, but I would love to hear your opinion on them. First question is, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Um, yeah, one of my favorite quotes is from the novelist L.P. Hartley. Um, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Is that from a book? I feel like... It's from a book called The Go-Between. Oh, okay. And I love the quote because um, if you think about it, when we, you know, if an anthropologist does history, people say, oh, but that's not anthropology. Well, yes, it is, because the past <laughs> is a foreign yeah. country too. I love that. Um, what do you love most about yourself? Oh, boy. I, that's a very difficult question for somebody to, to, to answer. Which is so, it's sad because I think it should be a, an easy one, but it is, again, normalized in our society to, to shun away from things that we do well and that we Well, I think I'm a really good father. I, I mean, you have to ask my kids. But I, I look back at, at, you know, how much I've, um, we've built a team with our daughter Isabel and so yeah maybe I, I'm a good team player I'll put it I'll put it that way and a good father 
And last question is, how do you find solace in the city? And city can be, you know, wherever. Well, I live in Washington, D.C. And the thing that makes me the, the happiest is anything that I do with my daughter, Isabel, you know, because she's um, somewhat limited in her independence and how, how much she can be independent. When I go to the zoo with her, when I go to a museum with her, when I take a walk with her, though every one of those things is solace. And we talk about the, our, con, our, um, our walks together or our visits to a museum or a zoo as being defined by three C's, compliments, consideration, and conversation. And we try to do all those three in every one of these outings. Oh, I love that so much. It's touching too, like because DC has a special place in my heart with my dad because um, he has a lot of family there, hence why my cousin is there. Um, and we, prior to the pandemic, would always do the cherry blossom run. Oh, right. In I've done spring. that. A 10K. Yeah. Um, and Or the t- 10 miles, I'd say. Yeah. Maybe it is. Yeah. Yeah. The 10 mile cherry blossom run. And sadly it's been canceled these past years, but it's like become our little tradition of getting up at whatever time in the morning and doing the run, um, honoring my friend who was a big runner because, um, my dad loved him too. And yeah. And so, um, DC has a special place in my heart with my dad as well. So, um, Well, anyways, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting. And yeah, and I just, I'm so excited to read both of your books. Where can everyone buy them? Um, Learn more about you. Well, uh, Amazon, any, you know, any place. Um, The book is, um, is, uh, it's hardcover, $17. Uh, It's not yet in paperback because it's brand new. Um, it's, um, nobody's normal, how culture created the stigma of mental illness. It's published by WW Norton. It's available also as an audiobook, and it's available on Kindle. Awesome. And will soon be available in multiple foreign languages. (laughs) You never know, maybe Korean. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Korean. Uh, the publisher is called Memento. They'll be publishing it in Korean. Well, thank you so much again and bye everyone. (music) 